brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. And brought to you by American Yogi. In a world increasingly driven toward the grind, find your outlet for peace. American Yogi is a mindfulness-based apparel and wellness brand with international retreats, free classes, and rad clothing and accessories to support you along life's journey. Find American Yogi on Instagram at liveamericanyogi or at americanyogi.com. American Yogi is proud to support the Brass and Unity podcast and its community with the code BRASS15. Join the mindful counterculture. Live American Yogi. Ears, welcome to the show, everybody. You know this bald man as Dean Stott, SBS, badass, and really cool human being that's doing great things for society by abusing his body and raising funds for charity. I'm very excited to have you back on, Dean. We got to hang out at SHOT Show, and then I've just called you ears ever since, and we've been best friends. So thanks for coming back on. I really appreciate your time. No, no, thanks for having me, and thanks for bringing back my childhood trauma of being called ears. Listen, (laughs) we all have to have, uh, we all play a part in each other's lives. I choose to play that part in your life. Yeah. That's for you. Well, since school, I've I've grown into my ears, so I'm all right now. When I was little more little smaller and my ears were the biggest thing that you could see so that's okay that's okay well so you've been on the show before and I know a lot of our listeners have listened to your episode when you were uh on at the beginning of this year but I'd love to well sorry last year oh my gosh it's been Mm. that long now uh I'd love for you to kind of give a quick overview of of who you are so that we can kind of dive in deep and if you want to go learn more about uh some of the things that Dean and I spoke about, you can go back and listen to his previous episode, but just give me a quick overview of kind of who you are. Yeah, so Dean Stott, uh, ex-UK Special Forces. I was in the Special Boat Service, as you touched on the SBS. Um, fortunately, after 16 years, had a parachuting injury and then found myself quickly you know, working in the private security sector. Uh, did some very exciting, exciting jobs in the security sector, um, probably more you know, more delicate and more sensitive jobs than I was when I was actually in the special forces. Um, and we could probably dive into some of them later. But uh, and then, but for me, I always, always, even since leaving the military, I always like to give back where I can, whether it's through uh, charity, philanthropic an- angles. And so uh, I like to take on huge 
endurance challenges. Um, I did one for, uh, wow, it's four years gone now already, 2018, yeah. where I, yeah, I cycled the world's longest road, uh, 14,000 miles from Southern Argentina to Northern Alaska, uh, which was impressive, especially as I was a non-cyclist. I'd only cycled <laughs> 20 miles before I applied for the world record. But what was probably more impressive was the um, the funds that we raised uh, around mental health. We raised about $1.3 million at the time, which was yeah, £930,000. And I think now the exchange rate is probably $930,000. So, <laughs> yeah, and since and yeah, and since um, for your listeners, since then I've um, I've moved my family to the US. Um, we settled here. We moved right in the middle of COVID. No real plan. Just took opportunity of while the world was paused and flew in with uh, two kids, eight bags, and a wife, and we'll just make it happen. And now here we are. Two years later, we're three kids, <laughs> more than eight bags and still a wife, luckily. Yeah, you are very lucky to have her. I will just <laughs> acknowledge that. I'll take that moment right there. Alana knows it, and I'm glad you do. But it's, yeah. it's, it was so cool getting introduced to you uh, the way we did. I always like to acknowledge people who are able to do awesome things. And so Garrett Jones um, did some work with you previous, and that's how we got connected through, through yeah. him. And it was it was really cool when he said, Hey, there's this guy, his ears are bigger than the rest of his body. You got to talk to him. He's not cool at all. There's nothing else important about him, but you just need to know about his ears. And I said, absolutely. I, I would agree, but it's, mm -hmm. it's true. Your book is fantastic. And the one you worked on with him and the one you have coming out on November 28th is, is great. I think you've got some new stories in there that are really mm -hmm. epic. And I, I, I went back and I got a chance last night to kind of hammer through some of them. And they're, they're really well written and they pull the reader in, um, in a way that I, I can really appreciate the detail and the accuracy of the things that you're speaking about is, is fantastic. But what I loved about the book itself and kind of who you are as a human being is not only what you used to do, but what you strive to do now in not only just the example that you're setting, but the way that you're carrying yourself throughout that process. So yeah. In the time frame that I've I've got to know you, you you recently beat the world record um, by like a long shot too. Mm -hmm. By yeah, like by so, seventeen days, yeah. Yeah, so you did that, which was no big deal. Then you got on a plane, and then you just name dropped yourself stupid and went to Harry's wedding with Megan. Like that's a normal thing to do on a Saturday. And yeah. then you act like that's nothing. Then you, you move to America, you've picked up, you've become successful in pretty much anything that you've done. And all within doing all of these Hollywood social media type things to bring attention to the charities you work with on the back end, you do something really, really cool, which I I'm going to argue is way cooler than the stuff you do on TV. It's mm. the private security sector. This is an area that you work in that I I've, kind of garnered a few friends in this space. And I've started to learn a little more about, but was always at arm's length. I was yeah. at arm's length until last year. And through Garrett, through you, we were able to pull something off that, that for, there's no reason why I should have been involved at all. <laughs> <laughs> at all. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, when you, we were talking, you said, you know, I do this, for, I do private security. I, I grow, I go around, I quote things, I move people, I, hide guns and I, and I do what needs to be done. And 
I haven't really heard you talk too much about this. And I, I, I'd like to start by diving into the security sector and how you went from an SBS badass to now this person who's working um, kind of in the shadows. Yeah, I mean, I know. I'm, I'm glad we touched on this because I think there's, there's two there's two Dean Scotts um, in in the world. You know, I, I had a call, I had a call a few weeks ago with uh, um, one of the head of stations for, for the CIA, and you know, just chatting about uh, a project we've got going on working together. And he's like, "Well, I've just Googled you, and it looks like you're a cyclist." <laughs> <laughs> I said. I said, yeah, I said, look, there's two Dean Scots. There's the one that the world sees, the media, the TV, uh, the podcast, the books. Um, but then there's another Dean Scott who still very much uh, does a lot in that private security sector. Um, but the difference now from a few years back was before when it was actually me going into these countries and physically grabbing people, getting them out of um, hostile areas, you know, it's my my profile's got my profile's raised my surveillance days are over but as you know we have a great network of ex-military and so there are still many people i know who are in the shadows and i can call upon to sort of do that so it's actually the media sort of working hand in hand now with the security because it's being able to come on shows like this and sort of explain what we do and get that exposure and then people will get in touch and then i can then sort of then push push them in the right direction but yeah how I ended up in the security industry was um I never planned on leaving the military um or I was a lifer um through and through and I I would for me I would be in till I'm 55 but uh fortunately I had the parachuting accident which uh, shortened my military career did a hey-ho jump tore all the ligaments in my knee and my, and my muscles in my leg and after 16 years so sort of told, you know, thank you for your service. It's time to leave. So. And rather you know, rapidly too. You got, you kind yeah. of got the same boot I got. You're useless. Yeah, that's it. yeah. We, we have, we have no more need for you. Thank you for your time. And right. then you leave and then you spend the next few years uh, arguing back and forth with the military for your pension. It actually took me five years after leaving for me to win a tribunal hearing against the military. So it's uh, interesting that, you know, when you're in, you know, you are the creme de la creme, you're their pop star and things like that. But as soon as there's no need for you, it's like, oh, yeah, thank you for your time. And as you know, and you touch on with the mental health, the identity crisis is that people go through and you're sort of left, left on your own to your own devices. And thankfully, we have a community of ex-veterans who sort of support each other. And so that's where I, that's what I continue to do more in the securities. I understand that transition from the military to civilian is very difficult you know it can be can be quite smooth and can be quite turbulent um because you are going from an identity crisis is there any work out there you know all i've ever known is is this you know firing artillery shells or jumping out of planes and things like that you know what is my role within society so for me i like to help guys and girls when they transition sort of give them that warm comfort that there is work there and, and push it push it their way but more on that is the sort of going back a bit on on that transition I was gonna start pulling that apart anyway because I think last time you and I spoke and this isn't like um this isn't knocking you take it how Mm. you will I know yeah. your ego, your ego sits at the yeah. front of you. So I'm going to, I've got massive egos. So I know. Fix I, I know you do. 
<laughs> well, we all know you do just by the way you walk, my friend. Yeah. So I, what I was going to say was the difference between last time we spoke and the, and the time that we're speaking now is uh, you're speaking about transitioning out of the military in a very different way. Before it was like this conversation was happening and I wanted to have that deeper, you know, conversation about emotions and leaving the military and identity crisis, but you didn't seem to be exhibiting any of those, you know, points of, Hey, I want to dive into this. I want to have this conversation. Now it seems like the more you've been, um, in America and more exposure maybe to the U S military or more of the things that you're doing mm. from like a veteran standpoint, it seems like you have grown more in that in that way that you're willing to have those conversations about emotions and identity crises, because that's the truth is people go through those and don't know how to cope with it and don't know who mm -hmm. to turn to. And what I like, what I'm seeing is people like you in the community that have this stature, uh, you know, that whether anybody likes it or not, special operations, even out of the military are still special operations. And you guys are still yeah. your, the go fast guys. And so people look to you for examples and they look to you for these conversations and this openness and willingness to say these things so that they can go, well, if that guy's that, you know, this huge blah, 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 like accolades, like crazy tough guy. And he can say, mm -hmm. Hey, I had this and this and this it's, it's going to help the community so, so much. So yeah. that's why I wanted to bring it up is because it's like your willingness to, to talk about this is really important. And I, I just wanted to highlight like growth man. Mm. High five. <laughs> I think, I think for me, you know, looking internally, what's changed since our last conversation as well is, is me being able to identify what it was I was actually going through. Cause at the time I didn't know what I was going through. I was angry. Um, you know, I was in fact, you know, I got to where I was in the military because of my sort of physical robustness and then having an injury and not being able to run a hundred meters. Um, it's only now looking back, I identified what I was going through at the time. And now I can sort of share that story with others. I, I didn't know at the time. And now having spoken with other veterans, worked with other charities and speaking to people, you know, there is a lot of similarities you know and it's not just military as well you know it's professional sports people anyone who works in any sort of team or tribe you know there's a great book called tribe and you know, we as human beings we like to be part of a community or a tribe and then when you're sort of told you you can no longer be in this tribe is that what other tribe can i join um so it's not just the military i think it's the whole of society really it's just being able to sort of identify what stage you're at and what you're going through um and you know for me it's like a lot of a lot of people is communication but i now over the years have realized how i deal with these situations is physical activity you know i need to you know push myself hard and you know physical activity helps your mental state and that's what i've always been trying to to promote but yeah as you rightly touched on you know everyone looks up to these special forces guys and you know they see what they see on hollywood you know bullets and biceps and bombs and things like that and think well these guys you know they never never have mental health issues we all do and and so for when that when people do see individuals like myself or and as you've even touched on before like the prince harry you know someone like that you wouldn't expect to have mental health issues you know when they start openly talking about their mental health then you know it, it helps it helps others think actually well it's not just me it affects the whole of society it's just how we cope with it 
differently. You know, for me, mine is always the go-to has been physical activity. You know, Alana, if I'm grumpy, she'll just send me into my pain cave, you know what I mean? And, ju and just sweat it out. You know, she knows that's all I need to do. Whereas others, it may not be that. It may be, I just need companionship. I just need to talk to someone or, you know, so um, yeah, there's different ways of doing it. But um, I think for me, going back to your original one, it's the fact that I've identified now what it was I was going through. At the time, I didn't. I was like, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm very stubborn, very, very old school. And there's almost the taboo was mental health that you don't talk about it and how that's changed so much in 11 years that I've been how has been great for the right reasons. And what, what do you kind of attribute that to? Because if you're uh, who you are, who are you looking to to learn these traits and these tools and these things from? Because it, honest to God, Dean, like in the time, even the short time I've known you, it's 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 drastic. Mm, yeah, I, I think I think case studies uh, help. I think we're we're now seeing the the waterfall effect from the conflicts of Afghan and Iraq. You know, I mean, days mm -hmm. of old when you had like the Falklands War or um, you know, the Second World War, Korea, and things like that. There was nothing in place you know what we also have access to now is likes of social media being able to communicate you know i i always did feel for the likes of my father my father he was a 22 year man and he got out and there was no social media so you literally and i don't ever recall him having any communications with any of his friends and so i think the fact that people um communicating more you know identifying that such and such has committed suicide you know the amount of suicides i see is, is shocking and i don't think that number has risen from old it's just we're now being made more aware of it but then certain projects certain campaigns um like you said involving special forces guys royal members of royal family that that has sort of uh, that's helped the military sort of get behind these things. I think they they realize that, you know, especially for, I don't know whether it's in Canada or the US, but the UK training is priority over operations. Mm -hmm. You know, they need people to come through the doors um, and they need to look after them. And I think they, they, they are now starting to come to terms with the fact that actually we have done this wrong in the past and something needs to change. Well, it's funny that you say that because, um last week i learned all about that because you and i have been out about approximately the same time what year did you get out was 11 oh 2011 yeah what month was that it was may me too what day oh, really? do you know <laughs> yeah no, i didn't oh. know that no no it was may 23rd oh wow yeah I, yeah i was may and then within 48 hours was in libya <laughs> straight away <laughs> You're like, forget you. I'll just go like run and gun on my own. I don't need your supervision yeah. anymore. But that's yeah. funny that you say that because more, more so than ever, I think you're right. Social media being a huge component and having the communication and ability to talk to people. I know when I got out, I kept Facebook and if literally, if only to be able to talk to and find the British people I was serving with because we didn't have phone numbers or anything like that because we just did the deployment. So yeah. afterwards we just communicated via social media. And that was an amazing tool, whether you were actually having communication or you were just witnessing and knowing that they were in existence somewhere else. And that's like you said, that's when the suicide started to pop up. 
that's when I started to notice it because then people are posting about it. And it felt like all of a sudden the suicides had always been happening, but we weren't seeing it on a daily and weekly basis in our faces and our social media feeds. And last week I went to, um, I got an invite uh, from the Canadian armed forces, which I never thought that would ever happen again. (laughs) And um, they, my, my old Sergeant, who is now uh, an officer and I refuse to call him by his new rank. Uh, Mark LeBlanc called me and he said, you know, I've been working on this thing for a year. Um, except he said, I like, uh, Kelsey, listen, I've been working on this thing for like a year, you know, and I want to bring you to the army again. And we have this whole conversation. And he said, you know, um, uh, like the CEO and everybody supports it. And we want you to come mm-hmm. in and we want you to go shoot your last round because we know we fucked up. Yeah. And what's wild to me about that was it was the first time that there was an acknowledgement from the ranks above, whether that was because I was getting a voice and it was scaring them or Mm. it was that, which I believe this is true. My sergeant who I served with had lost contact with me because of the, how poorly I was handled and they realized it was bad. And he, I think himself took that on as a leader being that he ran our gun and one of his people got hurt and he did not do or know or how to fix any of it. And what I realized as well, when I was out there this week was that he was 33 when he was running our guys, he was Mm. 33. He had done multiple deployments um, it wasn't his first one in Afghan. He'd done Bosnia. He'd done all of these things all by yeah. 33. And he, I was actually talking about you this week. Cause you guys look similar. It's very terrifying actually. And, um, what is it? His mus- muscular, muscular frame, big lad. Yeah. Bald arms. guy too. Yeah, just right. except he's got yeah. a French accent. It looks like, like Jason Statham. Does he? Yeah. Well? I'll send you a picture of him. <laughs> Um, but it's true. So we were having this conversation and I said, you know, I think, I think the thing about all of this is the acknowledgement that something was done incorrectly and the willingness to try and attempt to correct it, whether they knew if they could fix it or not, they, they wanted to make the considerable effort. So they brought me in. I went there for three days. They gave me all the attention I needed to learn about the the past, you know, 11, 12 years that have gone by since our time in the service and what they were working so like diligently on to correct because they understood that the veterans that they had from the Afghan war, obviously Canada leaving earlier than the U S and then just never helping again. Um, yeah. but that's, we'll skate over that for right now. Um, <laughs> But they they wanted to correct these things. And when I went out, they, so I went with the UAV guys and I learned about all about the advancements in the UAVs since, you know, with artillery, we never were using those previous. Mm. We did that. And then um, I sat down with like all the CEOs and all yeah. the people that ran the base in the artillery world and the school. Then they brought me out to the gun line where they were running an officer course and a foo course so that. I could have conversations with these up and coming officers and these individuals to say like, look, these are things they, cause they had to learn. They didn't know why I was there. All they saw was yeah. this truck roll up <laughs> with some chicken civilian clothes, half military, <laughs> half civilian. Yeah. That was a, that was a dig at my sergeant. Cause I thought I'd get in trouble for it because you never <laughs> used to do that. But now in the Canadian army, you can have yeah. 
you can dye your beards, you can pierce really? your ears, you can have your nail polish, you don't have to put your hair up. It's a very different army. And mm. so we went out there and they brought me along the side and they explained to everyone why I was there. And it was it was very um weird to hear a CEO speak about the failures are something she had nothing to do with, but taking yeah. the accountability from the leadership standpoint that we do not see in the Canadian mm. government or the Canadian army, or even in the U S government or in the U S army. So mm. it was, it was, um, I applaud what they were trying to do and they broke it down. And every big wig that was in the area came to this and said, look, like, we just, we don't want to do this to our people anymore. And all these guys mm. coming on these guns, they've never been to Afghanistan. They yeah. now, I felt like a 96 year old man standing there and they said, <laughs> oh, my friends, uh, my friends have all served in Afghanistan and I was so jealous. And now I'm seeing the amount of problems that people are having since. And I'm really glad I didn't have to go there. And that mm. blew my mind because that to me meant we are the Vietnam now. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. I think... I think what, what you're saying there, and I, I was just listening to, I think what we're also seeing at the moment is people, our peers, people we serve with now are in those key positions. They're now commanding officers. They're now RSMs and right. things like that. So they've been through what we've been through. They've lost friends. Um, whereas their peers before them from an older generation probably didn't, probably was aware that there was mental health issues, but didn't know how to address it, didn't know who, who to reach out to. Whereas now you've got this new wave of youth, well, I say youth, but they're all commanding officers who right. have access to people like yourself, um, other charities and, and can bring bring people in and, and sort of relate to us. So, so I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the tide change with, with, um, with these sort of positions being taken up by people who have served in Afghan and Iraq. Um, and, and can sort of talk to it and have bring people in like yourself who can share their stories and, and things like what worked, what hasn't worked and what can we do in the future to change it and make it a better place. And what was really interesting to me was how well they handled the situation. There was a bunch of kids there. I mean, these were all, these are all like children on the guns for the most part. And I was saying, mm -hmm. how long have you served? How long have you served? And we were talking about all of this and um, <clears throat> they said, how old were you when you served? And I told them and and they said, oh, are you going to like, you good? Like, do you want to watch a couple rounds before we got there? I heard the guns pop and mm. I was, I couldn't see them. So I wasn't ready. It took mm. a minute. It took a minute to kind of settle into that. And when I, when I actually did pull, I broke down. Like I was, oh, really? oh I fucking, <laughs> I was like, I'm like, but that's the thing is like, I have to be okay with doing that in front of people because it's okay to fucking feel things. So yeah, yeah. I, I took that on the chin, but what I did say, which I, the only thing about the new army, I will say that I really wish a little bit still existed, but you know, this is where the line can get messy is mm. I was sitting there and they were waiting for me to pull. I'd been given the okay to go when I was ready. And I was starting to get emotional. And I turned around to every person that was there and said, can someone give me shit? Can someone make fun yeah, of me? Can, yeah. can I need that? Because that's not yeah. something we do anymore in the military. Um, from what I've been told, like, there's a very... You have to be, it's a different type of army in the way that you talk to people. Um, even in the Canadian army, they, mm. you know, the one guy was like saying, oh, um, these, uh, what do you say? 
you know, women do this. Ooh, he goes, oops, sorry. I meant to say people. And I said, dude, I don't care. But so there still is this, like you, we've kind of crossed the barrier line, but then we've pushed too far past it a little bit. But what I'm seeing and what I'm encouraged in is that there are people that are now at the top of the ranks going, we can't do it this way anymore. We have to try harder. We have to transition people out better. And the biggest thing and the biggest problem they're telling me that they have right now is retention, is retention because there's no deployments happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the biggest problem with the, with the military at the moment is retention. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a show at the moment, which we'll talk about it maybe briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When I, I, get, I get to travel the world and visit the elite forces, um, which is great because this is a, a recruitment platform for them. But yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we, did, we, just did, we just did the first episode and chatting to one of the training officers there. And that, their biggest problem is, is retention and getting people through the doors because there is no Afghan and, and Iraq. Um, you know, one of my co-hosts with me actually young lad you know he joined he was i joined the army when he was born so he makes me feel really old but you know he joined because he played call of duty you know what i mean i was like really um i had a basic i had a guy in basic training who said that to us i'm i'm so dead serious because i've never heard somebody else say it to me he said he joined because he was good at call of duty yeah well i didn't i was good at mario but i never became a plumber you know what i mean so i just had him for it so um yeah but for, but for me, it's like, you know, he joined because he heard stories of our era and what we were doing and things like that. And I do sort of feel for them that, and even the period, you know, I, I was lucky to join at the height of the war in terror. It was the busiest time in, in special for, UK Special Forces history. But my peers before me had been waiting years and years and years. It was just that unique period, you know, probably from 2001, to 2012 that it was just solid combat you know the, the years of old the special forces they used to talk about the operation of the year but when we were going out the door it was the operation of the night and there was about two or three that night and it was just Jesus. one after the other one after the other and so that was a great period and 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 for me i always see where the benefits are in that is you know we we learned a lot in combat and, you know, you're always learning, you're always evolving, always changing your tactics to the environment. But now there's that, that lull. But now it's, it's gone from the busiest time to one of the quietest times. But that doesn't mean to say that something might, might happen around the corner. You know, that, that, that's the, the purpose of the military. Is you need to be on, on standby. So, but there needs to be something to attract them. There needs to be something to get them through the door and something to re- retain them um and so yeah as i'm sort of hoping this 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 documentary that i'm working on will will help help units do that as well well i know that the canadians i this is what blew my mind because i'm assuming for you based off of the amount of communication you have within your service mm. how much the training has changed because what i found out was to become a gunner in the canadian armed forces now you don't actually even need to touch a gun like you don't even actually need to run a triple seven or a one Oh five. Here's <laughs> what? So this yeah. is where my brain breaks a little bit because in order for us to become a gunner or to even get that, you know, that role, you mm. had to fire 
again, you had to know how to yeah, run yeah. a 105 and then you had to go on course to do a triple seven. Like you had to learn all of these and you were not called that until you pulled the lanyard. And now I'm finding out that there's because they're not training a fighting force in Canada anymore. That's the, he's, they, they said that clearly to me, we are not training. We're not a fighting force. We are mm. not doing that. All of the, there's triple sevens in Shiloh and there's triple sevens in, I think, uh, Vakatsi right now, but the rest of the triple sevens are in Ukraine. Mm. The rest of our stuff's in Ukraine and this base is getting ready to deploy again to Latvia, I think at the beginning yeah. of the year. So they're just, they're sitting on the line kind of waiting for things to pop off. And then when they do, you're going to see this huge rate run through and I'm going to go, you haven't been training gunners for the past 10 yeah. years. You've been, how are you supposed to fight with that? How are you supposed to be prepared at all? Yeah, it's being reactive. They're, they're being reactive rather than proactive. proactive. So I, sort of, I tend to disagree with that. So I always think you, you always train for the worst case scenario because mm -hmm. anything can happen around the corner. And one thing about, we talk about training, we talk about mental health. You know, I like the fact that, you know, the, the militaries are sort of uh, identifying that. But I don't think it should be, I don't, you know, for me, I'm a, I'm a stickler for standards and the standards need to stay the same. Like you said, you know, I don't know whether it's a budget thing, maybe a budget thing. There is that know. aspect of it, yeah. but there's still, but there's still, they have the training facility. They do have the guns. Mm. They do have the 105s. The access yeah. is there. Courses are running. So yeah. I guess, I guess I, my whole thing that I said to them, what I wasn't really fully understanding is they've even cut a week out of basic training in the field. They've compressed it now. Mm. And I, for me that I, I struggle with that. They, I said, you know, he was telling me, um, Sarge was telling me that there was changes in the way that they do their, their fitness testing. So they no longer need to dig a trench. They no longer need to actually carry a body. They only have to do a drag and it has to be a certain size. Like the standard is not the same as it was when yeah, I joined. Disagree. They don't do, yeah. they don't do pushups at like, they don't do like the, there's differences. And, and my, my response to that is we we know what it looks like if Canada has to become part of a rotation. We understand what it looks like to be in a fighting force. So why aren't we just keeping that as our standard just in case again, instead of having yeah. to go back and retrain these people how to go and clear houses properly so they don't get killed? But also, you know, need to it's the experience as well. So if they're putting that on pause, those that actually know it, Depends how long they put on pause for. Those that actually know it will probably left the middish by them, and they have no retention of um, experience. So you, no, I, I disagree with that. I know I'm. No, that's one thing I'm, I'm pleased about about the UK special forces is they they will never lower they were, their standards are their standards, and it's been that for, for years. Um, but I think again, the people that are coming through the doors is are, are slightly different. We're in a, an environment where we're used to, you know, this. You know, so like yeah. a lot of, you know, when I, I joined the army, here we go, I'm going to swing the lantern now, I'm really old. I joined the army in 95 at the age of 17. You know, there wasn't mobile phones. If you wanted to call your family, it was like a 40 minute queue. So I never bothered. So <laughs> in the, in the evening, all you would do is you would, you would go to the gym, you train, but it was very much, it was more of a social environment because mm -hmm. you didn't lock yourself in your room. You just got into, into the community area. I mean, and you just went on the piss. You just went mm -hmm. downtown and you, you socialized. It was very much a social environment. And I'm not saying the, the standards haven't dropped at all. You know, the guys and girls that are coming through now, they're still hitting those physical standards. But that sociable element's gone. 
in mm-hmm. the fact that they will go to the gym, they look the part, and then they will go to their room. And it's like, surely that's affecting their mental health, you know? And uh, so, yeah, there, there, there's some things that are good and there's some things I, I sort of disagree with. And I think obviously as the, as the world is evolving and changing, you know, the military need to try and sort of change with those times as well. But I think as we touched on there, back to the basics the basics still need to be there um mm-hmm. you know don't don't sacrifice those skill sets and that capability for for funding um or, or, or budgets because it you know it will catch you out the military the uk military did something i think it was in the was it the 90s or the zeros where they decided to get rid of a lot of experience all their sergeants and senior ncos you know they've only just caught up on that you know I don't know who came up with that idea. You know, they sort of paid them off, but you, you're losing experience. You can't be experienced without experiences. And right. so take advantage. A lot of the people, as we just touched on, we, we've operated in a time, the busiest time. They're the perfect people now to be training these recruits from their, from their own experiences, from their own stories. Because when they leave, at least they have that knowledge to sort of pass on. You know, hopefully, you know, we don't have a, another conflict that is never needed but never say never you know always play, always train for worst case scenario and you just don't know what's coming up around the corner well and speaking of coming up around the corner it seems like a lot of things are coming up around the corner let's just break down what's going on in the world because <clears throat> yeah. for once i feel safe to have this conversation because somebody else has their finger on the pulse and it's not me so that the information is coming from so Mm. Um, right now, uh, you and I kind of sparked conversation, um, about Ukraine, at least Alana and I were talking about Ukraine when it first popped off, um, and about what you, you guys were doing. So Ukraine is going on. I know the Canadians have individuals in Mali. Mali's got stuff rolling out, like Africa's doing its own thing. Then you've got the threat of Taiwan and the Chinese, which it seems like based off of just the you know, the movements that the public can see from China, there's some type of preparation happening along the border outside of Taiwan. Mm. I mean, from your perspective in the security sector, where's the world sitting? Yeah, the, the world's in a, in, a, um, in a strange place at the moment. But I think it's, it's, always, it's always been like that. It's just, I feel like I'll just probably go back a bit and I'll probably ask your, answer your original question right at the beginning of the podcast about security. And then we went down another avenue. So I uh, get comfortable. You, we'll do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. May 2011, I got out and within 48 hours was out in Libya uh, helping set up a project with the British Embassy. Um, I, I wanted to find a niche within the industry. I know my friends were all doing. Um, anti-piracy stuff obviously being special boat service I, I wasn't interested in that and soon identified that a lot of these and as we've seen more recently in Afghanistan it's come to light again a lot of these I call them the top five um, I won't name and shame the security companies but these guys pulling in six seven figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans getting retainers from their their, their clients giving them the security that they've got something in place to get them out of country. But when you scrape the surface, there's actually nothing in place. Um, and so um, I, that's what I did. Uh, in Libya, I decided I was going to build my, do my own evacuation plans. And I bought 30 weapons from the black market, buried in between Tunis and Egypt, designed my own evacuation plans. And as we touched on on our first podcast, you know, evacuated an oil company, 
on the evening that the American ambassador got killed, you know, single-handed evacuate the Canadian embassy out of Libya on my own. And so, so for me, there was, um, you know, they're just a couple of examples. And, you know, I, I did my book. I did my bike ride, actually. I did my book. I and mean, then the feedback from the book was, you know, great endurance feet, blah, blah, blah. But you are the security guru. And so for me, that's why there's two Dean Stotts. There's the one that's doing the media. But for, for me, you know, media's only got a shelf life. You know, you've only got a short window. You know, for, I like to stay current. I like to help people and I like to problem solve. So behind the scenes, still very much doing a lot of this crisis management. I mean, last year with the Afghan situation, you know, because of the stories I, I had, you know, the amount of messages I got of people ask, asking for help. But that happens all the time around the world. It just wasn't on the world stage as it was in, in Afghanistan. And it was the same situation. These private security companies saying, yeah, we've got procedures in place. And they failed. You know, insurance com uh, companies call in force majeure. Um, and then obviously some insurance companies, uh, some security companies not realizing they had no insurance. So thankfully for us, we have connectivity. We had something in place already. And um, as we just touched on a, me a minute ago with the military about being proactive and reactive. What I tend to do and specialize in is being proactive, is making sure that there's something in place rather than trying to ramp it up when it's needed. So these insurance companies, they will, they will pay for an aircraft to land in Kabul, but they don't cover you from your point A to your point B, and none of them do. And so I call it the first mile. So where I, me and my team come in is we actually design that first mile. We'll come in, we'll penetration test it, and, and we'll run it out. And so actually we ended up getting hundreds out of Afghanistan assisting and you know, a lot of them weren't even our clients. It's just where they've been let down by other security providers or, or other organizations. And for me, it was like, well, this happens all the, all the time. Um, people don't realize in is it eight, uh, April 2020, 70 expats got killed in Mozambique, where a security company, North Mozambique, where a security company failed there as well. So, but that doesn't hit the press. <laughs> so. Hey. Let's talk about that because I want to, mm. I want to know more about that because I think it's important to, to kind of go through that. So what happened, what, what was supposed to be in place? If that would have been you, what would have you have done differently? And how does, how, how does it not make the media? Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things as we know, don't make the media, you know, mm. the people don't like, uh, you know, like hearing stories like that. It was, it was a, French oil company and, and the staff there and and there was obviously some um, militia groups up in the area they sort of knew about it um, they were trying to get to uh, their evac point which was by the beach and were told that there was there was boats there for them and but they were also told not to leave their hotel but panic kicked in lack of experience kicked in and, and they did a road move 15 vehicles and I think only seven got through and the rest were, yeah, were murdered. And then there was nothing on in there was nothing in place on the beach for them as well um, when they got out. So, so this is what I tend to find is that people won't trial trial or error their evac plan until it's needed. And it's like, 
so many things change as well. So a lot of it's a paper exercise for a lot of these companies. It's like, yeah, we've got an EVAP plan in place. But those security managers will change and no one will then check it. Those The situation on the ground will always change and no one sort of... So it's something that needs to be... It's like a living document. It needs to be continually, you know, tested. You know, I did one um, for a mining company uh, in Colombia and it's like, so what's your evap plan he said oh this this is it and basically just done a google earth route and i said well let, let's go out tomorrow on this knowing that it was actually raining that route that route was impassable so i was like, so what's your what's your secondary plan what's your tertiary oh, we don't have one and so so it's a lot of it a lot of these companies claim to have it but it's a paper exercise so where i sort of specialize in is that first mile is is, is actually testing it um, and also along the way, having safe houses, you know, that was the issue with Afghanistan was like, Afghanistan was, 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 was unique in itself. It was more of a paper exercise than a physical exercise. It was like having the right people, um, the right documentation, you know, where, where their, their, their port of uh, destination is, did they have the right documentation for that? Because it was great. Don't get me wrong. It was great to see humanity and people wanting to get involved because, you know, it was on the world stage. And like I said, it's frustrating because this happens all the time. Um, but I think I had like 47 WhatsApp groups from the British Boxing Association telling me the, 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 the Afghan boxing team were at risk. And it's like, no, they're not actually at risk. And, and that was the most difficult for me was I really sort of identifying those who were generally at risk and those those who weren't um all the way through to like the housewives of orange county who raised hundreds of thousands and they want to get people out so it was nice to see that but actually what you then had was lots of organizations getting involved um for the right and some for the wrong reasons as well some it was just a pr stunt um who really didn't understand the the intricacies of an evacuation um you know getting them from a to b correct paperwork and things like that so it was a big big mess and uh, we got involved helping out and as you i don't know if you're aware some of these organizations now you know just took anyone out no documentation and things like that and what you've got now we've got people being investigated for human trafficking so it is hard saying no to some people but you have to do it right and you have to protect yourself because i know now that some are under investigation in the fact that they, they didn't didn't monitor that um and so like i said we, we we like to still be the expert in that area and as you've touched on likes of taiwan is now flagging up taiwan unique in itself because it's an island <laughs> so yeah. it's um yeah and, that, and that's what we do we sort of specialize specialize in that and you know for me it, there were there were great things that I saw you know we worked together as well on on some projects but seeing some of these other organizations you know it, it was it was frustrating when you got like Eric Pinkerton whatever his name is from Blackwater you know flying a flight into and he's charging eight thousand dollars a seat it's like no you shouldn't financially gain on the back end of a crisis um I'm not saying don't make any money because you're a business but you know Bit like me with a Canadian embassy, 18 military and four diplomats. I charged seven thousand um, dollars 
because yeah. it was the right yeah. it was the right thing to do um but then you within a short period of space you had afghan and everyone's looking at afghan and then ukraine and then everyone sort of dropped afghan and then just went to ukraine because that's what's unfortunately that's what's trending that was um, quick huh that was yeah, quick that was and quick. obvious and, yeah, and we're, we're still doing stuff in, in Afghan. And it was interesting because people like, well, I can't get hold of such and such or, or all these organizations. So does that because it's not trending or is it, are they following the money? And so really that, that's, that for me is, is frustrating to see. And, and Afghan and Ukraine are two totally different situations. You know, Afghan, the men were leaving the, the women and children behind. Mm-hmm. Which for me, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan. Cowards. Of <laughs> yeah. Whereas Ukraine, the men were extracting the women and the kids, you know. So when people say, oh, it's a similar crisis, I said it's not. It's two totally different situations completely. You know, the men are willing to stay and fight, whereas in Afghan, they, 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 don't get me wrong, there's men that needed to leave those that worked with the, with the forces. But I think because of the world press, there was every man and his dog trying to jump on the back end of it to, um, you know, sort of capitalise on that, that situation. So... But sort of going back to my original thing, this this happens all the time. There's, there's situations like this all over the world. And so for organizations, you know, their priority is the welfare of their, their people. They need to have these things in place. And a lot of them, because they don't understand the intricacies of an evacuation plan, they sort of believe their security companies that they've got something in place. Unfortunately, until until the, the, the balloon goes up and then they realize they have. Um, and because a lot of these situations... And again, Afghan was an example, is that there's triggers. There's triggers. You know when things are going to happen. You know, there's telltale signs. Right, maybe now's a good time to start moving, uh, moving out the country or, 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 look, or looking at ramping up. And so you should never actually get into a situation where you're, you're stuck like Afghan. Um, the only the anomaly to that is a natural disaster. That's the only time we ever, as in us, get caught out, uh, but we still have something in place. Um, so, so yeah, it would, it, for me, it was, it was, loved being involved, you know, loved getting back into it, getting our hands dirty again, but it was disappointing to see these other organisations still not learning their lessons from old, from likes of Libya and other places, and they still don't have anything in place. I mean, it's just all about the coin, how much they can say. There was a lot of um, a lot of conversations uh, around that time last year, where people in our community that are um, no longer serving went in with cameras and just trying to move people and film and do this whole thing, and mm-hmm. it was such a messy situation. And it popped off so quickly. Um, I can't help but know for a fact that this could have been done better, and. Yeah. Not even, and I'm not even anybody that understands the intricacies of what the fuck happened, but I speak mm. to enough individuals. I'm, I'm talking to Stuart Scheller, um, uh, next week. He was the, I think it was the Lieutenant Colonel who whistle blew in Afghanistan. And he was having this discussion, like this discussion in his book about accountability and mm. how this went so wrong and why we did this instead of doing this. And why couldn't we have just stayed at Bagram? Why would we have kept, why would we have pulled to one of the smallest airports with no way yeah. of really protecting it? And it was bound to happen. Something really bad was bound to happen at that gate 
it's just a sitting duck and i'm surprised it took that long for something tragic to happen yeah no i think, I think like you said it, everyone knew it was it was it was going to happen you know um but yeah you touched on it. if we kept background it would have been a lot better the location you know we've been able to control it a lot more you know i actually spoke to one of the, the main insurance companies and the guy in london he still thought background was open i was like you know that's closed he didn't even know and he's <laughs> the one dealing yeah so it's like you know real really worrying but like you said as well it's sort of going back to the things that were good that i saw positive and the negative yeah these people going in with camera crews and that what's your priority is your priority the safety of the people is your priority to get a story and so you know don't get me wrong i do work in tv and media as well but i wouldn't do it on on something like that and people capitalizing on that situation you know they're I don't mean their hearts are in the right place. It was just a PR stunt. And then before you know it, they're in Ukraine doing the same thing. But, um, you know, there were telltale signs. It wasn't a surprise. This wasn't a natural disaster. Everyone knew we were pulling out. It was like, why weren't there procedures in place? Why weren't they activated earlier? Why was this done lastminute.com? And so, yes. Um, but what I would say is, is and credit to was the armed forces the way that they dealt with it because that was a difficult situation for them i have no doubt you know the the, the parachute regiment and the, the british the u.s marine corps and all the other allied forces that was there it must have been difficult for them to to take off because you know you're when you're in those situations it's it's hard to differentiate between your heart and your brain um mm -hmm. you know you want to do you want to help as many people uh, as possible but to have to have left them and seen seen some of the sites that they saw and things like that but everyone and what was interesting for me as well is you know we were doing a lot um we've had 10 years of connectivity there so we had some great contacts on the ground which helped us with the, our safe houses but you know everyone was like the taliban this taliban that the taliban were actually very wilco they were on side with this whole process because for them, they were just about to take over. If something happened during their watch, it looks bad on them. So they mm -hmm. were actually, people don't realize behind the scenes, they were helping a lot. And we were liaising with them as well, with their intelligence and things that, they were actually helping a lot, and, um, much to what you see on the, on the media. And that doesn't help either. You know, just, I think if you didn't have cameras there, didn't have media there, it, it would have been a lot different situation. Oh, you wouldn't have had people reaching into their pockets and speaking up about Afghanistan all of a sudden after 20 years, all of a sudden you had all of these, um, these, uh, news anchors and press media, and you had all these people being like, and what's going on in Afghanistan is a travesty. Oh no, yeah. it has been for 20 years. Thank you for taking notice when it's <laughs> yeah, beneficial no. for your ratings. Like the, it was so, it was handled so poorly and, and, and that's it. You didn't need to be a scholar in understanding how this was working to fully wrap your brain around the fact that this was an epic failure on every front. And yeah. the people that were on the ground did handle it beautifully. And I'm shocked, like I said, I'm I'm surprised more service members were not hurt because of the mm -hmm. lack of security and weaponry and just control of the situation that was happening. Yeah. And then when I got involved, I was the last week of it. And it was impressive to see what happened when I contacted you? I, I 
Am I allowed? I think I'm okay to talk about Please do, yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, because I, I asked Alana before we put it in the book. I was like, can I say your names <laughs> in this part? She's like, yeah. yes, absolutely. So, so when I got in contact with you guys, we had nine people from the Afghan government that were predominantly all females. And yeah. the thing that infuriated me beyond all get out and still does, and I brought it up to the Canadian military when I was there, and I've been put in touch with somebody actually that's helping handle still move people um, from Afghan. And that was that the Canadians, uh, brr, we just called the snap election and Trudeau didn't have to answer to any of this. And then we decided we were going to send 73 Canadians into the airport with a full plane and leave with an, sorry, with an empty plane and leave with an empty plane. So we did not, there was no pulling of Canadian visa holders or G holders, which was really, really freaking frustrating because these people had Canadian visas and they were Afghan government officials. And I didn't know what to do. And the only person that I could think of, because everyone else I already spoken to, if, if they were in my Rolodex, they were already working on it and there was nothing mm -hmm. that they could do. The only other people I could think of was, I was like, huh, I remember Dean and Alana mentioning something <laughs> about being sketchy individuals. How do <laughs> I deal with this? And so I contacted her and it was, I don't know how your wife keeps her cool. I don't know how your wife doesn't sleep the way she does, runs a family, mm -hmm. and then legitimately, no offense, felt like single-handedly was just pulling people out of this country with no issue. I spent a week with her on call being like, I need your help. You, I don't have money for you, but I need you to help me clear documents because the Canadian are not responding to get these authenticated and she was so calm and so sweet about it and she's like just send me your stuff let's see what we can do and she sent it off and got everything authenticated and we were only able to get them past her checkpoints because you guys took the time while evacing people who had paid you to do this properly just on the slot like on the slide mm -hmm. she's like i'm not sleeping anyway let me just help you fill yeah. this it's no big deal yeah yeah, it was. Yeah, we had like, we had a great team. We had a guy working with us who's doing all all that sort of paperwork as well. And so, yeah, we saw those opportunities. You know, because like, the, yes, there was those that were paying, and we and, you know we needed to help them. But what there were still empty seats. So it's like, well, look, let's fill those seats with like people like yourselves. It was really interesting because there was so much going on. I remember, I remember going to bed at night, Alana staying up because she's having to coordinate because of the time differences in, in Afghan. And so we mm -hmm. were having to sort of piggyback staying away to make sure to coordinate all these messages because what it was, it was almost like we were very much, like I said, it wasn't like Libya where I was physically going in, grabbing them and dragging them. This was phone calls, phone call tech, just the right people, the right time, coordinating what gate they needed to go to, what time they needed to go to. Cause that was what the problem was what you saw in the media, it wasn't the fact that people didn't have documentation. They had documentation, but they were given a time frame, a window, like three hours, three to four hours to be at that gate. But what they were doing, as soon as they got the paperwork, they were just all going auto straight there. And so that's why it looked like Bedlam. And it wasn't, it just wasn't co um, coordinated. It was coordinated properly, just people weren't listening to the to the um, the rules. But yeah, no, Alana was great. I know she was working on, on your one. There was another one where, um, strangely enough, my, my kayak sponsor, 
my friend's wife got in touch. She used to work with the UN ex-military and she said, look, a bit like yourselves, look, Dean, I know this is what you do, uh, or you, <laughs> you may be able to help. You have a great network behind the scenes. Um, and it was a lady, and I won't give her name, her name but she was um, basically, she was in the Times uh, 100, like, name in the Times 100 uh, Women of the Year or something, or Personality of the Year. There's photographs of her with the president, US presidential team, and oh. they didn't touch her. They didn't touch her. And it's like, I don't know who else to get to talk to. And so, yeah, Alana... Alana was sort of helping with that, got her out, plus 20 other girls from an underground school um, uh, to Germany. So things are starting to really like, like ramp up. So yeah, I'd, I'd get up in the morning and Alana's been up all night sort of coordinating. And it was almost like, yeah, that, that group's now done. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was just, yeah, a lot of, a lot of man hours, especially with the time, the time zones. But again, it's just knowing the right, people in in the right places so i'm glad i'm glad we could help 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 your situation i i hear they're doing well now as well <laughs> so. yeah i mean they're blow it blows my mind shabnam is in ottawa she's going on to her doctorate's program she had a uh, guest lecture spot at ottawa university Wawa law and the baby are settled in new york um with their husband because that was part of the problem is he was their husband her husband Wawala, was in at nyu during all of this and their three-year-old right. was there. And so they had no lines of communication and they got in contact through me, through Griff from Combat Flip Flops, who had been doing, because of Combat Flip Flops, they have given literacy to over 800 girls in Afghanistan. So they had, mm. they had footholds on the ground and just people saying, hey, can we help them? And he said, well, the Canadians need to go to a Canadian. So he gave them to me. So it was a very quick phone call that just, it was very mm. simple. These are Canadians. I can't move them. If you don't, they're stuck. They're going to get hurt. And I was like, oh, I'm not equipped to deal with that <laughs> emotional task. What kind of words are you saying? But then with you guys, what I loved and like, I don't want to pry too much, but I really want to uh, express the importance and um, the strength in which Alana was able to do this, because I think people kind of forget that um, Alana is also a mom and then also has a million other projects. They don't know because mm -hmm. she hasn't talked about them publicly yet, but she's got a lot going on. And what yeah. I was able to see out of her was not only just like sleep depth, like mm -hmm. the fact that she's never done deployments, but her sleep depth ability. And then the way that she's able to handle people while being that sleep deprived and yeah. as calm as she was she if she would have joined the military in my opinion would it end up have being one of the best leaders i've ever seen it yeah. is truly impressive to see her ability to handle stressful situations under pressure the way she does and mm. i remember calling her freaking out <laughs> like, so what happens if they die because the bomb went off and i just moved them to another safe house and now i don't have any americans to grab them and she just was very calm and she's like, we'll sort it out. If I can't get them, we'll get you somebody. You're going to have to take it from there, but we'll get you somebody. Don't, you know, just yeah, do yeah. And I was so lucky, like you said, to the, it's important to acknowledge the, the military because what the U.S. was able to do on the back end of what the British, meaning you humans, were yeah, able yeah. to do was impressive. He, they went outside the chain of command, completely disregarded what they were told to do. As long mm. as their documents were cleared, they had no problem sending. And Austin told me to 
a signal chat. If he dies, this is on you. I'm sending him out in t-shirts and a short, tell him to look for the guy with the big beard and the muscles. So that was, yeah. And then they popped smoke for them. So that's how we knew how to move them. But in all of this, I can't imagine of doing it, the amount of people she did it and you did it for without Mm. benefiting financially, without getting anything on the back end, nothing but sleep deprivation. You guys did it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And that's it is the right thing to do. I think, you know, for me, it's great to hear those stories, what they're doing, because I don't, I don't get any follow-up, you know, it, for us, the, the, my, my normal last line of communication is they've landed and I, I just cut away completely. So I, I still have that sort of, and this is where it's quite good with partnership with me and Alana is that I have that sort of military disconnect is I don't get too involved. You know, I know you, obviously you, you, you were very like emotional because you knew the story and things that I don't really, I see it as a name. It's quite bad really. Whereas Alana. Hey, you. Have you checked in with yourself today? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Have you had enough water? This is your midday check-in, brought to you by Midday Squares. Big breath in. (sighs) I'm back at it. It's interesting to see which ones Alana sort of handpicks and and works with and and knows where, you know, I I probably, not that I see him as a name and a number, but um, she, she, she is the calm. I like mm-hmm. to see it. For me, you know, as a personal thing, I like to problem solve. You know, I think mean, I've mm-hmm. told you, if someone tells me you can't do it, that's the challenge. I'm like, let's do it. Um, and so when you came to us, when my friend's wife came to us and they'd, they'd hit every sort of barrier they could and we were their last resort and, and got it through, I, that, I see that as a, as a, personal, as a personal challenge. Um, and and for me, I've you know I've just now built up a reputation of being the one to go to if if you if you need help. Um, but like I said, it probably won't be me again physically going in with my ears. Give me away with my surveillance days. I know I mean, they but do. We have we have you know we as we touched on before, we've got a, a group of people now coming towards the end of careers who've had great experience. Mm-hmm. They come. They come with great experience and knowledge because they were in that period we were talking about, and so we. I I have access to those and, and those tools. So yeah, I have a great network um, that I can sort of rely upon and, and put people out on those sort of situations. Oh, and that's what I want to touch on next was your your ability to build a network, and I think that's maybe the difference between you and other security providers. And I mm-hmm. want to kind of touch on that because I don't think individuals who are looking for security providers or also just interested in that space fully understand the logistics and necessary communication on the ground that is needed Mm. to successfully move people um, Mm. on a regular basis. So that comes from you having time in the special operations. So can you talk to me about cultivating these relationships? And that's the thing that Alana has always stated is you treat people differently than most do. Yeah, I think I I do the, uh, you know, Back to Hollywood, you know, Hollywood has this this perception of special forces and, and all the explosions, the the biceps and the bullets, the offensive action bit, which is actually twenty five percent of what we do in the special forces is that, uh, and that's 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 almost in the back pocket. That's your last resort that you need to do that. Fifty percent of what we do is support and influence hearts and minds. It's being embedded with the locals, understanding the the ground truth, understanding the demographics, the politics the tribal influences, their cultures, 
um, and really understanding them as a nation and 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 as a, as individuals. Um, but that's not sexy. That's not that doesn't make good TV on Hollywood. But that is what <laughs> that is actually what we we are very good at, uh, at doing. And so what I've done with the security industry is that is I've sort of adopted that fifty percent of being embedded with locals, understanding. You know, for example, the. Um, so the Canadian embassy, going back to the Canadian embassy, the week before the British embassy got shot at every checkpoint between Tripoli and Tunis. And so I know this was this was worrying to the Canadian embassy. So I went out with my fixer. And also that what's unique as well is, 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 is having a good fixer in each country, um, but making sure that that fixer is good for that that region. You know, for, for example, I wouldn't have a, a fixer from Benghazi working in Tripoli, two totally different areas, and you know, can cause trouble. So you need, you need to have an understanding of of the lay of the land as well. But we went out. We didn't speak to the guys who had the guns at the gate. We spoke to the tribal elders, and I actually sat down with them. And all it was was showing them respect, some courtesy, some communication, letting them know we were we were no threat as well. So Alana always says, "My, although I stand out anyway, in my USP is that you can communicate with anyone, whether you are a member of the royal family or whether you're young." young boy on the street, you know, you will get the same treatment from me. I won't look up or look down at you. I will treat you exactly the same. But I think it, it works a lot, especially in the security industry and sort of going into a little bit more on that and where we're successful is a lot of security companies will come in and try and do it themselves. They'll bring in their own team behind them. But you're taking food and water and from the locals. So wherever I, we operate, whether you know it's in Latin America, whether it's in Africa or, or Europe, you know we will. There's an element of the team we need to keep the nucleus, which is us, which is the command. But where we can push that work out to the locals, we we do that, and that's where we get good good response. Whereas you get security companies coming in, and like, we're just going to bring in our own team, and they will just keep hitting hurdles. You know, as you know, with with the military. There's no better knowledge than local knowledge. And so that's what I do. I have a really diverse team. Each task, each country isn't the same. You know, you know who can we use from the locals um, to help benefit us? And, and they, they like it. When you put food on their table, feeding their family, they're going to be more receptive to you. They want to protect you because they want to keep earning, earning money. These security companies coming in, eight guys that look like me sort of bullying their way through, it's, it's not going to work. And also, you know, selecting the right team, you know, what does, what does the right team look like on, on a bit of paper? You know, the Canadian embassy, you probably thought six to eight guys that look like Dean. It was actually me, a 50 year old internet shop owner from Worcester back in the UK, whose family were from the tribes in Zwala and the oh. borders. And also his cousin was the president of the GNC, which is the new government. I'm in two fish wagons and that's all I needed because anything bigger would probably bring attention to us. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's understanding that, that ground truth and what, and what is actually ground truth. And as we've touched on Paul, not what's being said on TV, on the media, you know, like when I go to places like, like, I love some of these places, Yemen, Somalia, and I work on my own. I tend to work on my own initially. And the reason that people think it's quite dangerous, but for me, it's a lower profile. 
um, when you're working with teams, then you've got more guys and girls to work with and there's welfare issues that come with it. So my initial footprint on the ground is single operations. Um, and in the very early days, I got a lot of respect from the locals because they would be getting emails from New York, from London, these big security providers. Oh, this is who we are. This is um, um, this is what we deliver. These are our capabilities. And if you Google any security company, they all offer the same. It's mm. just whoever's got the biggest marketing, marketing budget. But where I was sort of winning the contracts was the fact that I'd taken the risk myself. I'd gone to Mogadishu, not stayed at the airbase with everyone else, walked into town, got a, got a room in the Peace Hotel, and was just... And they were like, ah, well, the fact that you're here, you're sat down with my family having food, that that itself is, is enough for us. You you understand there there are threats, but it isn't as bad as what the world is making out. You know, I mean, I would go spearfishing in Mogadishu for, you know, I mean, and it's like these waters are, are amazing. So that was my sort of approach to security. And that's how I'd managed them really build a, a, a great network. It was from that initially taking those risks but also just showing respect and appreciating the locals rather than tarnishing them with one brush, which a lot of security companies do. Do you think they mean to do it? Or do you think it's innate behavior learned from being in the service and they think this is still the same way you act when you're out? Um, I don't know if they mean to do it. I don't know if it's budget restraints. You know, the problem you have, you know, some of these companies, you know, they're, they're security companies, but they're so risk averse. That's the problem is they won't sign off on it. When you're self-employed or whatever, you're like, well, the only person I have to answer to is Alana. And it's actually Alana who's sending me out. You know, that's the problem. That's the, that's the problem She'll send you, you anywhere. She'll, She'll send, send you anywhere. Everywhere. I'm out. All right. I, 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 no word of a lie. In the early days when I started to build up the, the network, I would, there was one day I flew in. And she'd already had me on a job. I was on a, a flight out the next that afternoon. I was like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, well, I mean, that just tells you, you needed to be working. She needed you to be working for your own sanity. That was until we could figure out that you needed to be doing world records to keep you yeah. clear. But I think you, you, you've met Alana and you've had on your, your podcast before and used to a, a great friend, you know, sort of going back. And I didn't mention it at the beginning, you know, when talking about the transition when you're getting out, you know, the military is like your mother and your father, you know, they clothe you, they feed you, they pay you on time. You know, I was very much reliant on the military. I didn't know anything about tax. I didn't know who was providing the heating on camp. I didn't care. You know, I was doing a job that I loved. And yeah. so a lot of people, just the simple things when they transition, when you take away that whole community, I mean, you've got to like look after yourselves, and, you know, Alana sort of, build that void for that her that was quite easy so i tend to find those that transition smoothly have a good network around them as in like a family network who, mm. who is supporting them and those that are really having the turbulent time is because and i i get it you know some of these wives put their lives on hold for 22 years and it's like well now it's time for my career or they then or they soon realize actually they, they can't ever live with each other and then get divorced and so it, you know I, I tend to see a trend in the fact that what is you know when someone's suffering or, or struggling you know fine and, and everyone's quite quick to throw pts out and it's actually it's probably just he's going through a divorce or he you know he's looking for a job and, and things like that so i always look at their their, their nucleus and see if they've got the support there. But thankfully for me, as you know, Alana was 
pretty much took those responsibilities from the military so I could just focus on what I needed to do. And she knows that I'm very irritable if I'm if I haven't got anything coming up. And so she likes to keep me busy. But on the flip side of that, there was a period in our life where the yin and yang balance wasn't there. It was so much mm-hmm. security. I think I was after the Canadian embassy, I came home and I'd only been home 21 days in a 365 day calendar. And Alana thought I wanted to be away. And when in fact, we didn't really need that much m- money because she was doing so well anyway. And I, and, but I thought she wanted me away and it was like, legit. and all it was, was lack of communication. And then once we got that sorted out, the yin and yang happened until I did the bike ride and then it's just gone <laughs> the, the opposite balance. But um, that's been, you know, for your listeners. And as you know, that that's the success of my stories is having that support network. I wouldn't be able to go to Somalia or Yemen or cycle these bike rides if it wasn't for that support network at home. And that, that that's what's crucial. And that's probably what, that's the success and how I stand out from others is I have someone like Kalana. And you have, well, that's the truth. It's, it's the sad, but honest truth is that the majority of people, when they get out, it seems like from what I, those even just experienced that I've experienced around me, they're, they're either divorced before they get out or they're getting divorced when they get out. They, and also their children, they can't see them for whatever reason, because the PTS gets thrown out and really it could just be struggling with not being able to communicate about the fact that maybe they're going through a divorce, that they're feeling these yeah. things, that they're not having community or I, they're having identity crises now because they don't know who they are once they're out. And mm. I feel like, you know, maybe I'm wrong on this. It seems like you're involved more now with the veteran community than you were when you were in. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, without a doubt, you know, I was those that know me that were in, you know, I was, you know, nicknamed the monster or the general. I was like your typical tier one guys. I didn't care about anything but the team. You know, I didn't mean that, you know, I was very arrogant in the fact that I didn't know anything about other militaries or history of military and things like that. It's only now as I'm getting older and probably a bit wiser that yeah, I want to sort of um you know, help the veteran community more purely because now I, I'm I'm in a good place in the fact that I've been 11 years and 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 the word transition, you know, I don't think you ever fully transition. It's just transitioning for, mm-hmm. throughout the you know, whole period. No, but I'm in a I'm in a great position now, and so I can sort of look back and look at those turbulent times because there were turbulent times, and sort of help know that others are going to hit them soon and sort of help them through those times through sort of my my experiences i and, and that for me is always that initial leaving period when you, when you leave i think that's always the hardest time because there is an element of uncertainty you know is there is there any work out there can i support my family you know can i do this without the military and then I soon realize you know some of my friends are out now and they're like why did i not get out earlier it's right. just that uncertainty, that not knowing. And so I remember when I went through it, it, it was it was hard because you know, I didn't want to leave the military. It wasn't my choice. Um, I felt like it had been snatched away from me. So it was almost like a double whammy. Where there's some guys and girls who they're at the end of their career, they're ready to go now. You know, mm-hmm. a good friend of mine, he popped by the other week. He's been in since the age of 16. He's 52. 
he's got three more years left. They've even done 39 years and he's ready to go. Well, yeah, he, you he, think? Yeah, he, he, he's, he's, re he's ready to go. But he, it's worth him staying on for those extra, extra three years. But then he's also already talking about, well, if he offers me an extension, I might stay in another two. And I know <laughs> that he, you know, for him, when he gets out, he's going to really struggle. From the age of 16 to 55, he's had that that comfort, that umbrella above him. Um, and so, yeah, I think they will look to those that in their eyes are successful as well. You know, one of the things I really, right. you know, when I got out, they do these transition workshops. And what they did is they then brought in four or five companies of very successful individuals. And I'm like, ah, that's good. However, it sticks all of us under pressure that, that you know, yeah. if I'm not as a success of that person, I'm, I'm a failure. And so one of my sort of, you know, like, for example, I won't name him, but one of the guys up there, he's talking about his successes. But I know that he had three other business failings before that success. Mm. What I want to hear is those failings, you know, and, right. and why what he learned from that, not where he is now. And so I don't think that helps matters when you have these, uh, a panel of successful individuals, because when you're getting out, you're already nervous and, and worried. <laughs> and so I think there needs to be an element of a uh, uh, balance there. And so, um, like I said, you, you know, you're seeing our successes now, but there were failings along the way. So, yeah. And that's normal and that's human. And that should be yeah. the conversation because People need to know that it's okay to fail. It doesn't mean that it's the end of things. You just have to pivot. You have to change and you have yeah. to move forward. I think um, I think your book illustrates that really well. I think you've done a really good job with that. I think the the, the next thing I'm excited about for you guys is, uh, you know, when Alana's book comes out, because it picks mm -hmm. up and it rounds you out, man. It rounds yeah. out who you guys are in a really different way. And it shows a different side of not only you guys as a, as a team in a contracting, but it shows a different side of you as, as parents and as human beings, and you're willing to be mm -hmm. willingness to be as vulnerable as you are. It's, it's, um, absolutely fantastic. And I, I, I do encourage, uh, anybody when it does come out to grab Alana's book as well as Dean's, because they both, there's a lot to learn in them. And I think that's what I liked about your book is you talk about your life stories and you talk about the things that have happened to you and the things that you've done that are, you know, just if anybody else had heard them, you know, it, it's like listening to a mission impossible, you know, movie. Mm. It's true. The stuff that you've had access to and the things that you've done are beyond impressive. Even if you just did one of those things in your lifetime, let alone yeah. multiples, but to see the way that you both articulate what you've learned and how you've moved forward from it, the, the tools in that, and the way that that helps people is so damn different than if you were to read a book about this is how you should move on from trauma. This is how you should yeah. learn how to cope in life. The learned experience and the life that you both have led, just the mm. stories on your own, you learn so much from. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of these like leadership coaching books where they're, they've got titles and sort of all plagiarizing this is what you should do as a leader this is what you should do but you know for me i think where what's unique about relentless and alana's book is is life experiences it's like well this is where it was applied you know rather you know this is where we use that this is where we sort of honed in on that that experience or that all that knowledge so yeah i think that's what's good about this book there are a lot of takeaway points and lessons learned but it comes with real anecdotes 
rather yeah. than just, you know, someone reading from a PowerPoint. Well, like you, like you said, you don't want to listen to the panel of people who, you know, have had failures and then only talk about the success. I want to hear from the people who have gone through the shit to come out the other side to go, Oh, well that's relatable. Oh, I can understand how he did that. That makes a lot more sense. It does. And I think, I think for me, I talked about earlier, you can't be experienced without experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like someone said to me once, you know, if you, if you could talk to Dean, Dean, age 16, would you do anything differently? I said, because I need to learn from those failures. You know, I, you know, we talk about my military career. I spent 56 years in Colchester prison for knocking out three guys. You know what I mean? You know, would I do that again? Yeah, of course I'd do that again. But what I did is I learned from that. You know, you know what I mean? And, and so it's, those, it's still all those experiences, lives that make... <laughs> In the situation we're in at the moment, making some of these key decisions, whether it's Afghan and or, or Ukraine or wherever, you know, that's come from that that sort of time. But also the word failure, I think, needs to be sort of dumbed out, or it needs to be sort of um, taken out. You know, it's it's taken out of context. People are scared of the word failure. You know, for me, I don't see it as a failure. I see it as an experience. You know, as long as you learn from that experience and you don't repeat that again don't get me wrong when people fail again or or repeat it then they haven't learned their lesson you know so for me don't worry about failing what were your takeaway points from that and what if it's when they they do it again is that we haven't learned you know i mean it's like as long as you know take away those experience points and just make sure it doesn't happen again but yeah i think people are really worried about that and social going back to social media social media sometimes doesn't help him because you always see people being happy and successful that yeah that's a facade <laughs> you know what i mean i want to see and i'm i'm guilty of it as myself you know i don't really i'm not very that open and honest i'm still i'm still learning about social media don't get me wrong i've, I've got a um uh imposter syndrome still on that because if for me it's like it what it was a taboo when i was in the special forces we weren't allowed on it you know right you know aliases like billy hot rocks was probably my name on it and then now it's like you know you need it as a tool um to help promote your brands help promote your books but also it helps with the afghan crisis as well for people to be able to get in touch so there are elements of good from it um but it's just getting the balance right but yeah like i said you know these people people worry because they see all these people being successful you know i won't post about the bad day that i've had i'll always post on on, on, a, on a good day but maybe i should maybe i should because then you know it normalizes yourself as well well i think that's the other thing though too dean is it's okay to like and i know you know this it's very aware but it's okay to have shitty days and it's okay to acknowledge mm. them to others i mean for god's sake it's always the most uncomfortable when you decide you're going to take a picture of yourself when you're having one of the hardest days and people say, oh, that's vain or that's whatever. But I think those times where someone is struggling the most, I've found personally when I've been most honest and open about it has been where people have learned the most. Like, for example, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm still trying to work out, but because of you, I did Jocko show. And the thing that I learned uh, from that experience was, and that has been the most emotional and uh, open interview I've ever given in all of my existence. So if anybody has a copy of it, I would really like one. Um, (laughs) But what I've learned from that was 
people responded more to the hard, difficult conversation I was having than any mm. other thing you talk about, about motivation and getting your shit together and all of that. But, but talking about the really terrible things, the stuff that was really fucking hard that almost broke a human to be able to see that as, okay, I can learn or I can uh, relate to, and I can see how that got better later on. Okay. If that yeah. person can do it, anybody else can do it. And yeah, that's, yeah. I think the takeaway is these difficult things are going to happen in our life, whether it's, um, whether you're Prince Harry or you're, you're fucking, you know, anybody else in this world, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter where you sit in stature in terms of society. You're a human going through a human experience. Yeah. 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 Mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't recognize no. class or society and things like that. And I think that's what we need to, you know, get across and think that's why it's good that like to Harry, some of these special forces guys are openly talking about it, you know, because if they can talk then anyone, anyone can talk in, in the public size, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a beautiful thing to see though, because if only if only we were able to have done this early on, how many more people we would still have on this planet? Obviously, you can't yeah. look, you can't look back, but it'd be nice to think that you know if we started this a little sooner, then we might have a few more people with us. And mm -hmm. and like you said, you're you know something you said at the beginning. I don't know if the suicides are higher or not, or just we just know more about them. And you know, yeah. it seems like the recording process and the willingness to be honest if somebody takes their life is different. I know insurance before in the military, if you if somebody took their life, like the benefits, the family wasn't getting the benefits, or they weren't even getting the mm -hmm. funeral that they were deserved. Yeah. Um, now it's, it's, they want to know, they want to know the truth. You don't lose those things. If you talk openly and mm -hmm. honestly about it. And I think that's the difference is the shame and the, um, the taboo is not attached to mental health the way it was. I mean, I still think yeah. we have a long way to go, but I think mm -hmm. that it's on the path of, of progression. Yeah. It's going in the right direction. I think you're right. I think, um, you know, I've done some guest speaking back in UK and some of the military camps and they're everywhere. These posters now, you know, who do you, who you can go speak to? You know, it's, it's, it's good. To, it's good to see. But I still think there is an element of people worried about their their jobs, their career paths and things like that. And so uh, I think there is still a way to go. But it is, as you say, it's going in, it is going in the right direction. So it's, it's nice to see anyway. Yeah, no, it 100% is. I know you've got some other stuff kind of going on and I know we can't talk mm. too much about it. So, I mean, I know that every single time I get a text message, you're in a different country right now. So what are you doing? Yeah, uh, let me get, I've got to get the wording right so I don't compromise. Myself. Yeah, I know so, uh, that's why I'm giving you a moment to correct yourself. Yeah, what so exactly I'm, are you doing? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, what I'm, I'm doing a lot of TV now. And I think when you and I chatted last time, um, after the bike ride, everyone's like, what are you doing next? So I like to take on a new sport, discipline, find the biggest challenge. So, and I, I talked about on Jocko, I was going to kayak the world's longest river, the River Nile from source to sea. And so that was the sort of plan. COVID sort of didn't help matters, slowed it down. But then when I was chatting to sponsors and, and some of the networks, you know, they love the idea. Um, but unfortunately, we're in a society where it's like, it doesn't matter how many world records you've got or how many millions you've raised for, for charities. Like, how many Instagram followers do you have? And that, really? And so we're in a society where it's all about eyes on you. How many how many eyes can we get on you? So it was disheartening hearing it because I don't have many and I don't, you know, it's, it's still, like I say, it's a, new, it's a new thing for me. But um, actually, I thought, well, the next two years, the plan is to raise that profile. Who is Dean Stock? 
you know, what is he doing and things like that. So I've been given a couple of TV opportunities. I did one in Australia last year called SAS Australia. I've turned it down a few times, but it just, they asked at the right time, there was an opportunity. So I went out there and it was basically four ex-special forces instructors shouting at 20 celebrities, taking them through some sort of like very um, compressed selection processes or and things like that, which is, which is good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It gave me some good exposure into TV and how that works. And then I got approached about another show, which I've just started uh, filming. It's a factual series about elite forces for one of the major streamers. So it's within my lane uh, as well. But what that will do, A, it's great because I love the show. I love the, the idea of the show. Uh, B, it keeps me fit short term. You know, because I always like to have a, have a goal or something to train for. You know, at the age of 45, you know what I mean? I'm not 20 or 25. And so it's, for me, it's a good personal challenge on there. But what it does, it also helps raise your profile. Um, and things like that. I mean, my sort of plan is then once we've sort of done that and sort of raised the profile here, and but this is a global network as well, so it'll be around the world, is that I can then bring the Nile back to the table and say, right, well, this is the next challenge. Who wants to get behind it? Um, but from a philanthropic angle, what it does is because you've got more eyes on you, when you're raising money, it actually generates and raises more money as well. So it's not that the Nile's gone, it's just that it's being put on hold. So, yeah, so sort of balancing all that. And then, as you touched on earlier, the releasing Relentless US. Um, because The cover is so much better than your last oh. one. <laughs> well, the, the, the reason, again, this is Alana, the, the reason we did this, when we came to... When we came to the US, uh, my my book was already launched in, in Europe, in the UK, and um, in September 19, I think it was. And I, I spoke to my publishers. I was like, well, I'm I'm in America now. I'm going on this guy's podcast. Uh, it's quite big. I think we're on 1.6 million downloads now. I think it's in his top 10 of his podcasts. Um, People magazine were doing a four-page special on the family, which is the largest magazine in the US so it's great exposure so I said it may be worth getting some books into the US for this but they weren't interested because it's almost like it was like 15 months no 18 months almost since the release of the original book so they didn't so the podcast got me to number one on Kindle and so Alana being Alana she's like ah, right got in touch with the publishers <laughs> and I love like, this woman well, you haven't released it in the US or Canada or North America. So we will buy the rights from you for that. So that's what we did. We bought the rights from them. And we've added a couple of extra little stories in there, you know, from the original book. But um, but the, we looked at the original book and you know, there's, there's two distinctions from UK and the US. Um, and like the, the, the first book is very dark. It's your face and a couple of frogmen coming out. Whereas America's all about light and hope. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we, so we changed. So, uh, yeah, there's the, the picture yeah, the cover there. the FN Minimi uh, as well. But also we were losing a lot of potential readers on the first book because it said from SBS to World Record Breaker, but it didn't record, will record in what? And so yeah. the typing community is huge. Millions, millions of people there. So we've sort of, We've got the cyclist in the, in the background. So at least from the front cover, they can see it. But then we we Americanized the book as well. You know, we changed the S to the Z. Um, 
bit on the original book we had some great endorsers for that we had sir Reynolds fines who is the most you know, impressive explorer in the uk leveson wood as well and then bear grills but in the us people won't know leveson wood or sir Reynolds fines so we've we kept Bear Grylls. Uh, we've got Admiral McRaven, who tells you to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the head of special operations and, and Jocko as well. So it's like, it's names that the Americans will know. Um, but mm-hmm. like you said, that that front cover would never <laughs> hit the shelves in the in UK or Europe. Whereas here, <laughs> it has a bit. It's a go. It's a bit more receptive. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so that's what it is. It's, it's, the, it's just gonna, it, for us, it's the US, north and canada launch yeah and i think that's going to hit a new york times bestseller really fucking quick too my friend yeah. well when 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 basically alana's in charge of the uh the, the pr and not the publishers and yeah it probably would she's ruthless man i'm telling you i, I don't <laughs> joke around about her she is she's a scary scary individual and she's a dangerous woman in, in the best Ugh. way possible i mean she makes it happen yeah. for both of you and i think that's what's beautiful is the that there can be enough communication. And I think that's the other thing that people need to highlight with you, Dean, is like, it's Dean and it's Alana, but it's Dean and Alana together. And that it's mm-hmm. possible to be successful in a marriage in a profession like yours. And I yeah. think that's another thing you don't see very often. No, it's, it's true. I know, I remember when I got out, when I was getting out, Alana, she wanted to do CP, you know, she did all the courses as well. And she wanted to mm-hmm. learn. And then unfortunately she got pregnant with Molly. And so, so that sort of, but but a, a, a dampener on that. But she she understood the industry. But a lot of my friends were saying, "Oh, you can't work with your wife. Can't work with your wife." And then like now they sort of look back and understand that actually I can't work without my wife. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Not that you can work with you. No, I I I I wouldn't be here telling these stories if it wasn't you know as I said for her. You know, I generally believe that anyone can break a world record if you take away someone to support the businesses, the mortgage, look after the kids, you know, do your nutrition, get you your fundraising, mm-hmm. you know, well, I, I've got easy, as Alana has always said, I've got the easy job. I've just got to ride the bike, you know. And yeah, just, uh, just perform. Just perform. And, and we, and I think for us, you know, as a team, we understand our strengths and weaknesses, you know, we, we call it brain and brawn. Um, I'll let you guess which one I am. <laughs> <laughs> So we just we just know what works and what's done, and and two very different individuals. I'm very much the extrovert. I'm the front of house person. Alan is very much a little bit more shy back back of house, but we'll we'll put a contract in front of you before you could leave the table. Yeah. Oh no, she's ruthless, and she'll not only oh. get the contract, she'll get and she'll tell you what's going to be in the contract. Oh. Yeah, yeah, and and I say we've touched on her book, and she's she's got five books coming out, three kids' book, and a business book, which I think is going to be quite exciting. How to ask for money? I'm um, stoked about that one. <laughs> I haven't read that one yet. The other one she did, her life. Yeah. I told you, I crushed it on two flights back to back. Did not put it down. Did not stop reading it. And I can't say I've ever done that before. Somebody with wow. a TBI reading on a screen is not my favorite. But I, yeah. I laughed out loud on the plane. I cried on the plane. You must have wow. thought I was going through some shit because there was this <laughs> very cyclical, emotional roller coaster. This tiny yeah. human plane was, was going through. But it was, it, man, it's impressive. You both can write, and I know Jez helped a lot with yours and getting down what you were feeling and what you were going through. And 
he articulated it beautifully. Yeah, I think, then... I, I, yeah, I don't, don't put me in the same bracket as Alana. Alana can write, I can't, you know. He can write. Uh, yeah, Geraint Jones, Jez, our friend, was credit to my book. And if, if it was left to me, we'd still be on chapter one. Um, you know, but the great thing about Jez was the fact that he was ex-military. So he understood the, the language, yeah. which helped me because I still have this, whatever I do, whether I'm doing TV or whether I'm doing books, uh, a bit like yesterday when I had a photo shoot, I'm very like looking into the detail and, and looking in the eyes of my friends in the special forces, how will they read that? How will they see that? Whereas Jez was quite good. I was like, you need to go in more detail. Jez is like, no one cares about that. And he's like, That's <laughs> 95% of the readers won't even know what that is. And so that was, I think what is, what is unique about Relentless is how it flows so well. Mm -hmm. And it, it's easier to read. Whereas if it was left to me, you know, I'd be talking about the, the airspeed velocity of a 5.56 round and people are out pouring. So... Yep. But that's okay though. There's strength, like you said, you know your strengths, you know it's mm -hmm. not writing. You know that you can tell the story to somebody and somebody can articulate mm -hmm. it better than you. It's, it's yeah, listen, I yeah. I don't plan um to take full credit on all of mine. I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of smart, a lot smart people that were looking behind that and going, Yeah, we should probably reward that. That doesn't yeah. look that doesn't look right. But yeah. it takes a team, man. It takes a village, and that's yeah, no, yeah, true. all aspects true. of your life. Um, so what's next then? So the book's coming out November 28th, which mm. is going to be the release of this episode. And so yeah. you've got that. You guys are getting ready for uh, just, you've got the other show coming out here. When's that uh, expected to release? Do you know? We're hoping spring next year. Hoping spring next year. Um, we'll, we'll continue filming like one one country a month until, until spring next year. So yeah, I'm excited, excited for that. Um, you know, then Alana's, you know, has her first kid book come, child book comes out at the end of January. And then we're in, we're in a sort of a cycle till all, all the books are released. But already looking at beyond, beyond these, you know, denial is something that, that I, I want to do. I still need to get that cleared through Alana yet yeah, between you and I. The, um, <laughs> and then as, as you touched on me, we've got a new member of the family, Harley. She's six weeks old. And so, again we talked about the yin and yang it's great that we've got these things going on but we also need to sort of find find that time um for the family so um also conscious that my children have led, led a hectic life an exciting life but it's time to sort of ground our roots and give them some sort of stability um as well so yeah lots changing within the, the family network um i'm laughing because <laughs> harley's at the door with alana um perfect. In, in a new outfit i don't know here we go let so, me see oh oh baby look at her alana yeah. i want to eat her <laughs> so yeah so she's got the same haircut as her dad yeah you know I mean? sounds about right yeah so um so yeah so it's, it's that balance between between family and work you know what i mean because you, you can easily fall into that truck that one takes priority over the oven unfortunately it's always the family that's the second place uh, in some time some time so again you know as i talked about the turbulent times we've learned through our experience you know we, we've got it wrong in the past where i i thought being home 21 days a year was good for the family it wasn't you know, <laughs> you know financially we were we were supported but you yeah. know you know we needed to needed to work on that so Oh, We're look how big she's getting all right, too. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. You know, forearms like a dad. 
Perfect. So, well, it's okay. I mean, Molly's got your ears. She'll have your ears. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. So we got all that going on. And, you know, one thing I'll probably, I haven't told anyone this yet. You know, I'm probably looking at another book, but on security, more lessons learned, more of a business book. You know, those who want to, those who want to get into the security industry um, and really sort of understanding it. And it's been really interesting being here in America um, because you have the gun laws where I've been in security around the world without a gun. And so, cause I don't have a gun. I, I don't factor that into my, any of my planning. There's, there's secondary and tertiary planning. Whereas in America, they have the luxury of being able to carry weapons, but mm-hmm. that's their primary plan. And it's like, well, no, these are lessons I learned about the industry. And so, really do um do a book on that start each chapter with an anecdote and then mm-hmm. talk about the subject and 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 the, and the lessons learned i don't mean there is a book out there at the moment on that so that's that's one thing i'm looking at so i might give jez a call again or alana uh, or alana <laughs> either one i think that's going to be a brilliant book that's the next thing i was mm. just going to ask you before we mm. ended here was how does someone get in touch with you if they want to hire you? What are you called? Where do they, how do they give everyone kind of the breakdown? Because I understand that you, like I said, you guys are the best in the business for a reason, mm-hmm. but you also, you also need to be accessible. So where do we get that? Yeah. So I'm actually called Dean Scott, although you call me is, you know, just so your listeners know that I'm not known as is. Uh, so yeah, it's Dean Scott. So you, you know, and then we have the website, www w.deanstock.com i am on social media i do unlike other people i do monitor my my dms and and, and get back to people so there are numerous ways you can get through either through through the dean stock channel or one of my social uh, media channels uh, as well but before we go i wanted to touch on the uh, the buddy checks as well ah, I, I wanted yes. to thank you i wanted to firstly thank you for sending me plenty of them to give away with with my with my books um and i think i shared this this is this has got so much attention everywhere i go people ask me questions about it and i think you and i chatted about one the other day where what's uh what's the question they ask you dean well they asked you was this your first confirmed kill and (laughs) And what does dean say and i said well i never used the free free a but actually (laughs) i wouldn't have stopped to try and find the brass either at the time you know i mean it's like (laughs) <laughs> so but it's interesting but then but it's great because it's a, it's an actual what's really i like about this a is the the reasoning behind it the buddy check but it's also such an easy icebreaker you know mm-hmm. such an easy icebreaker people talk about you know so what is the you know what is it about and things like that so it's um it's great yeah so i yeah i've done you, you'll see this on my arm on a few of these media shots and tv as well so it's gonna get good exposure it. Yeah, I know. And I, I didn't expect that. I thought they were going to make you take that off. I, for sure. I noticed it. I noticed it. So I gave that to you. I put that on you in January of this year. And I don't, yeah, yeah, Shasha, I don't think it's come off of you. It's got to be, you must be due for a new one soon, but I, I put it on you. And then next thing you know, I started seeing everything you were doing. You had it in, you had it in all your five eleven stuff. You had it in all your sunglass stuff. You had it all your workout videos. You had it in all the TV and then yeah, I but it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually comfortable, you know, it's comfortable, it's, it's easy, you know, yeah, I, I just, it just I, I sometimes forget it's there, it's actually, it's only when other people 
mention it that I, yeah. I realize it's you know like remember i've got massive forearms it gets lost in all that hair so it's only when it pops up through <laughs> it means a lot man that's the whole point mm. i think that's what my goal was when coming out with this i mean i've had that product since uh i think the the first year i started my business and it was funny because last year i was going to phase them out we weren't seeing them sell in the retail sector in the fashion world because that's where we predominantly sold our product up before covid was we were in over 200 retailers in in fashion wow. branding so we weren't yeah. we're not we're not um Arguably, I'm similar to you where I'm more connected to the veteran and the military community now than I was when I was in. And it's because of the, the work I've kind of pivoted through COVID and started to change up how we do things. And when the buddy check came to mind, I didn't intend to put it on anybody unless I cared. And I wanted them to know that mm. I was there. They're, these are my friends. And I just want them to know that I care even if I'm not around and I didn't want it to be a t-shirt or something like that. Someone's going to change every day. I just want them to know that it's on them and that they can call. And it was that simple. I just didn't expect you to wear it as long as you did. And I'm, I, every time I see it, it makes my heart so happy. I saw a picture Alana sent me right after you guys had Harley and there was a whole bunch of them and you were cutting her umbilical cord and you had oh, yeah. it on. I bawled my mm. book and just, <laughs> brilliant. Oh, no, brilliant. yeah you'll you know. see see a lot more of it next year yeah because yeah it's not, it's not, it's not leaving this wrist yeah listen i don't know what i did to deserve uh you and alana in my life and i've said that from the moment i've met you there's mm. something very special very different and very unique about you two as as individuals but together you're a different type of people that uh more mm. of us need access to because if we did we would only be a better society and that goes to show that even in during crises you put your money where your mouth is you don't profit unnecessarily you do what you need to do you don't charge people an exorbitant amount of money to save their life you just you just pick up the phone and you're just good fucking people and that's why <laughs> i love I love sitting and having conversations with you. I love sitting and talking with Alana and I just love getting to know both of you uh, more because it seems like every time I pull back another layer, there's something even more interesting, caring and, and just loving inside. And, and when I first met you, I got to tell you, it was just, it was just the ego. I was just waiting to see how deep I could get with this guy and to see how far you've come and just to see the family change and how you guys are moving through changes the way you are. It's a great example to, to everyone listening and watching. And you guys are a great follow both of you individually and together. It's, it's impressive. No, thank you very much. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Yeah, man. Anytime. And look, so everyone else, uh, Dean's episode, this will be out on November 28th. You can go buy his book everywhere. I'm assuming there's going to be an audio of it as well. Besides uh, are you yeah. updating it. Yeah, no, I will do an update order. Yeah, Amazon and Barnes and Noble will be on those sites. Yeah, I just need to try and pin down me being home for 24, 48 hours to, to read. You know, I joke that I've only ever read one book and that's my own, my audio. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, it's just purely just because of lack of, lack of time. Um, but yeah, I will, I will get, I will get around to it. I won't try and do an American accent though. Please don't. No, yeah, I struggle. We'll come out Irish or Australian or something else, something completely different. None of us need any more of that in our lives. <laughs> I think we're all, I think we're all set there, man. All set on that. Brilliant. But um, everyone else, go grab his book. Go give him a follow on his social media. We'll put everything in the bio. Dean, you stick with me. Everyone else, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>